0: Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics, or society. The poisoning of former Russian double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury shocked the world. It was the first use of a military-grade nerve agent in Europe since the Second World War. Britain was convinced from the start that Russia was behind the attack but the Kremlin repeatedly denied any involvement. It even suggested that British intelligence was responsible. Russia was already under punitive sanctions imposed by the US and EU for annexing Crimea and backing separatist rebels in eastern Ukraine. The attack on the Skripals led to the biggest ever Western expulsion of Russian diplomats. Then Dawn Sturgis, a Salisbury mother of three, died after spraying herself with a discarded perfume bottle found by her partner. It contained Novichok, the same type of nerve agent used in the Skripal attack. Shortly after, detectives announced they had identified several Russian suspects using CCTV and airline passenger lists. In this episode of LSEIQ, Joanna Bale asks, are we entering a new Cold War?
1: Yulia Skripal looked remarkably healthy in her first TV interview following her recovery from an attack with a deadly nerve agent. The only visible sign of her ordeal was what appeared to be a tracheostomy scar across the front of her neck. Here's an ITV news report of what she said.
2: Looking surprisingly well considering her close brush with death, Yulia Skripal said she was interrupting her rehabilitation because there were things she wanted to say.
1: Good My name is
2: First she introduced herself, then expressed her hurt and anger about the attack on herself and her father. After 20 days in a coma, I woke to the news that we may have been poisoned, she said. I still find it difficult to come to terms with the fact that both of us were attacked in such a way. The fact that a nerve agent was used to do this is shocking. We are so lucky to have survived this attempted assassination. Yulia says both she and her father are recovering, but it is a slow process. I don't want to describe the details, she said, but the clinical treatment was invasive and depressing. As well as asking why she and her father were targeted, Yulia Skripal said she wanted to thank the people of Salisbury who went to their aid and the hospital staff that nursed them. But she had a message for the Russian embassy declining their offer of aid. I'm grateful for the offers of assistance, she said, But I want to reiterate, no one speaks for me or my father, but ourselves. And to underline that point, Yulia Skripal signed two copies of the very firm statement she had just made, one in English, the other in Russian. Paul Davis, ITV News.
1: After the attacks, there were multiple explanations from the Kremlin and Russian state media as to who was responsible. It was British spies, an attempted suicide, even Yulia Skripal's prospective mother-in-law a high-ranking Russian security officer, got the blame. The Foreign Office was so incensed that it put out a video on YouTube mocking this campaign of disinformation. Dr. Christian Nitu is an expert on EU-Russia relations and an associate at LSE's foreign policy think tank, LSE Ideas. I asked him if he believed the orders to poison the Skripals came direct from the Kremlin. He refers here to the assassination of former KGB officer Alexander Litvinenko who was poisoned in London in 2006 after claiming asylum.
3: I think it's important to note that, uh, for example, in the case of Litvinenko, even though uh, I think the trial has shown that Russia was involved in some way, it's not clear which aspects of the Russian state were actually involved. So making a connection between Putin's regime and those two cases is highly problematic because in russia you have many actors and as in any kind of more or less authoritarian state those actors will try to please uh, policymakers who aren't at the top of the hierarchy so and uh, they would because they want to please those policymakers in a bid for to get more uh, benefits from them they would try to sometimes resort to very extreme measures in order to please them, doing much more than people like Putin or other policymakers around them would actually want. And this leads to very paradoxical situations where you have uh, actors that are not related to the government doing things that actually are against the policy of the government and it's very hard for Uh, for the Kremlin to control them. Obviously this this can happen in other countries like uh, China for example or other more authoritarian countries but on the Russian side it would have been really easy to admit that uh, let's say some rogue actors in the state were responsible for this but from the perspective of uh, domestic politics in Russia this would have been a really bad mistake because it would have shown Actually, the Kremlin is not so powerful as it claims to be, and it would have uh, derailed its whole narrative of the Kremlin protecting uh, its citizens against the West. So if if the Kremlin is not able to control various actors within the state, then how is it able to to actually uh, be a unitary and strong state?
1: Other experts believe that the Skripal attack bears all the hallmarks of a Kremlin assassination. Peter Pomerantsev is an expert on Russian propaganda and a visiting senior fellow at LSE's Institute of Global Affairs.
4: Well, the Kremlin uses political assassinations all the time. I mean, mean, there was the Litvinenko case Mm. before that, which was, was, I think, maybe more of a shock to the system because it was the first, but they pretty much got away with that. But political assassinations are completely part of the Kremlin, um, you know, foreign policy vocabulary. Um, And, you know, they've been... (laughs) kidnapped a spy in estonia dragged him across the border um you know there's it's, it's it's kind of for anybody familiar with the crime it's like yeah this is what this is what they do um, the question much more is how how do we respond um and that's been a much more thorny path and much more questionable um and really says a lot more about us and um, look i don't know the background to this case as i like you know i can i for one certainly can't prove who killed him but if we assume the Kremlin did it and realised there was a chance of being found out, then I assume, you know, they were trying to test various alliances and test Britain's position in with relation to its, to, its, to its allies.
1: Anne Applebaum is a professor in practice at LSE's Institute of Global Affairs. She is an expert on Russia and runs ARENA, a research programme on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. I asked her about the implications of the Skripal case and how it might
5: develop further. Um, it's been very difficult so far for the West to react to these, um, to these kinds of provocations because there's no obvious deterrence. So what should we, should we then go and murder somebody on Russian soil? Um, and people have talked about that, but obviously that's not the kind of thing that um, British um, special services do, uh, secret services do now, um, should we, you know, what is the correct, what is the, correct, uh, what is the, um, the adequate response? Um, it was also an important because it was a challenge to, particularly to Britain, at a moment when Britain is seen by Russia as weak because Britain is leaving the European Union, because it's not going to have allies of the same kind that it had before. Um, because um, you know, because Britain's role is, is 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 now in question. So what was so was it? You know, what, what, how will Britain react? Um, I think the the in general the response was um, better than many people anticipated, and this was partly because Theresa May uh, went to uh, the European Council and she produced quite a lot of. Um, intelligence data that she had on the case, and she very quickly convinced her, particularly her German and friends, but also other colleagues, um, that this was, Rus- this was a Russian state attack, that they had used this particular chemical, and so on. Um, it leaves open a question as to what would have happened if, if she hadn't been able to do that, if, she, if Britain were already outside. But, but, um, but she did convince them. There was a group reaction, um, it, you know, and I think your question is correct in that it then says, okay, so now what? Um, Expelling diplomats isn't really that big a deal, you can always appoint new ones. Um, In the US in fact the Trump administration made clear that they they understood there would be new ones would be appointed so it was a kind of routine ritual response rather than something deep. Um, It does look like there is now inside the British government a real conversation about what to do next. Um, There are lots of options being considered. Um, The decision to refuse a visa to Um, Roman Abramovich, who's a famous Russian billionaire and also the owner of the Chelsea Football Club, um, is a sign that um, some people in Whitehall are beginning to ask, who who are these billionaires, where does their money come from? Should they really be able to move around in Britain and and do as they please? Um, And we hear of other kinds of checks on other Russian money too.
1: But will targeting the UK-based oligarchs and corrupt Russian money really make a difference? Here's Peter Pomerantsev.
4: There's been several strong statements from from MPs, but also from various financial authorities that we won't put up with um, corrupt Russian money in the UK. Um, To a certain extent, look, it's a very nuanced thing. This would have been the ideal policy, I don't know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, when the Kremlin was still trying to be part of the international system and there was still a moment of leverage, you know, that you could say, look, you guys want to be part of the... You know, the the city of London sort of, uh, um, you know, various sort of like uh, 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 stock market flotations Uh, to do that. You you know, you can't, you know, you can't have these grotesquely corrupt companies. Um, Now where Putin is less worried about being integrated with the West, um, I think the scope actually for effective action is smaller. That's not that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I just think we should also apply it to other corrupt countries like Ukraine or wherever. So it's going to have to be actually quite a clever game to play. There I think I think there's a certain amount of oligarch activity in London that Putin would love to see curtailed. He'd love to see these last connections to the West cut away. Um, you know there's a real you know jealousy and anger among the you know parts of the Russian elite who can't travel abroad anymore and the ones who still can. One still can do it in a very surreptitious way, so this is not, you know, Putin has been calling for de- offshoreisation for a long time. Having said that, there are real kind of strategic financial interests the Kremlin has in the West, which they are very, very paranoid about, because you know the Kremlin is in a classic dilemma situation. It needs to keep up the sort of the sort of low level pseudo cold war to keep that going in order to legitimise itself at home or and to have something to do basically. On the other hand, it's completely dependent on the West for its finances, so for its um, you know, sales of energy and so on and so forth. And that's a very delicate balancing act they have to play. Um, so if, these, if our measures are surgical and clever, we could find those pressure points. But we've sort of missed the boat on this in, in a big way. And while I'm very glad that corrupt money in the City of London will be clamped down on, I think that has to be done universally. That can't just be a purely Russian thing.
1: Christian nito you.
3: In this case, initially Theresa May had a very strong approach, but this was not really backed up by really strong measures. So it was a lot of talk, but not that many practical efforts. From my own research, I found that oligarchs support both the Labour and the Conservative Party. For example, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, NGO, the Coalition Against War, if I'm not mistaken, was financed heavily, and still is ha- financed heavily by Various Russian oligarchs in London. As at the same time, uh, the connections of Russian oligarchs with uh, members of the of the Conservative Party are much more well known, and the British media has pointed uh, out to a lot of cases. So, and if if uh, we're analyzing what Theresa May has done in in the last month or so, there hasn't been any kind of strong response from the. UK government, it seems like the UK government has actually abandoned the issue and it has moved to something else.
1: Russia's tactic of blaming the Skripal attack on everyone but themselves has been
5: analysed by Anne Applebaum. The first time we really saw this happen outside of Russia was following the crash of the Malaysian airliner in eastern Ukraine in 2014. And when that happened, instead of simply denying that it was Russian um, uh, uh, officer, you know, Russian soldiers who who sent up the missile, which we now know to be the case, it's been shown in a number of number of different organizations. um, They put out a million explanations. You know, it was the Ukrainians, and they were trying to shoot down Putin's plane, or it was. Uh, You know, some absurd ones, a plane full of dead bodies had been sent up into the air and crashed on purpose. Uh, And the reason they do this is that when you put out a dozen explanations, you create a sense of um, lack of clarity, We, we have no idea what's going on, it's very confusing. And indeed there was a very good series of interviews that were done in Moscow after that plane crash with people just walking down the street saying what happened in the crash, who's responsible, and most people said. We have no idea and we will never know. It will be impossible to find out." And they create the impression that there's no truth, there's no answer, you can't know, there's multiple explanations. This is exactly what we saw happen in the Skripal case and actually the British Foreign Office was prepared for it. Um, they had consulted um, you know, with m- m- people who had been working and writing on this subject, including us at the LSE about you know, how Russia would be expected to react, and they knew that this was gonna be the case. And they therefore reacted by keeping track of these multiple explanations, sending out to journalists periodic emails. You know Now we're at number 18, now we're at number 23. How many of these different explanations? We and also putting together short videos which actually made fun of this tactic um, and sought to undermine it, not by in a kind of grumpy Foreign Office way, but by using um, so you know, a social media a social media method of mocking the Russian um, Russian behavior. Um, you know that doesn't not going to work with everybody, um, but it's, it's one of the tactics that we're now trying to fight back against this because you can't this is no longer an old-fashioned information war of the kind we had in the Cold War where you know one side said was thing, the other side says the other side and both try to prove that they're right. Um, there's no point in doing that. The Russians aren't trying to prove their right anymore. And they actually don't care if we believe them. The point is not that they want to prove X or Y. The point is they want to kind of pollute the information space, you know, make everybody into doubters, you know, have everybody laugh it off, you know, take, take the seriousness out of the situation by promoting lots of absurd narratives. So why are the Kremlin and
1: Russian state media so keen to blame others for the Skripal case? Christian Nityu.
3: Well, as, as a leader, if you want to build an authoritarian regime, the easiest way is to portray the country as being always uh, under the threat of other countries, being always encircled. And in, many analysts would argue that Putin has built this narrative of, uh, of Russia being encircled, of being a besieged castle and this has, in the last 15 years, this has been ingrained in, in the Russian psyche and everyone now, to some extent, believes that the West is against Russia. So, it's, to some extent, it's, it's really easy if you build this kind of external enemy to, uh, to take away the attention of uh, the public from domestic issues, from poverty, from lack of modernization in the state to this idea of tackling a perpetual enemy or in in Russia's case also trying to recover the country's great power status that was lost after the end of the Cold War. The Russians uh, for that matter thought that uh, Theresa May's initial let's say strong approach in the Skripal case was actually a way of taking the attention of the public from Brexit and the whole negotiations and giving her more popularity because we know from the scholarship that when uh, leaders are faced with external crisis and they have they exhibit strong responses their popularity usually skyrockets and in the case of Theresa May I think there was some sort of heightened hike in her popularity following the British response towards the Scripple case so it's mostly to answer your question briefly, I think what Russia is doing in foreign policy is obviously driven by internal concerns, and it's driven by the need to keep the population under control and to enhance the Kremlin's own popularity, as there is also a perpetual fear in Russia that the whole country would disintegrate sooner or later, so in the absence of some sort of glue, and in this case the glue is, is fighting a perpetual enemy like the West, Russia is from the perspective of many rationalists it is doomed sooner or later to disintegrate.
1: You mean to disintegrate in, in what sense?
3: Similar to the Soviet Union. So Russia is formed by many republics. You have many ethnicities, many religions. Some of them have different levels of autonomy and independence. So it, and uh, there, there is a feeling that if Russia is not able to create this idea of a viable and strong state, then those republics would try to secede and try to be independent from Russia.
1: I asked Anne Applebaum what she thinks Putin's long-term goal might be. Putin's been in power for 18 years, and I just just wondered what you think his ultimate strategy or his ultimate
5: aim is. I think it's pretty clear that Putin is now aiming to stay in power until he dies. Um, There's been a recent move to change the Russian constitution to allow him to continue to run for president. it's also pretty clear, though, that he's more nervous about his legitimacy and um, than he was in the past. Um, he was very rattled in 2011 um, by a series of protests, very powerful and unexpectedly large protests in Moscow that greeted his return to the presidency. Um, and he's very paranoid about his incorrect belief that these protests were somehow fomented by um, by the West. I mean, I think I joked at the time, you know, I wish we were so clever as to be able to foment protests in Moscow, but sadly we're not. I mean, I underlined that was a joke. But um, he doesn't believe in spontaneity. He doesn't believe that anybody has agency except for himself. You know, any, any objection to him he interprets automatically as a, um, you know, he has a KGB mentality that um, uh, any any form of opposition is by definition treason. There's no such thing as loyal opposition. There's no such thing as legitimate criticism, and so he needs to eliminate all that. Um, but stepping back, you know, to stay in power, um, he therefore has, um, a, a mu- he needs a much broader strategy. And for him, a part of that strategy is to make sure that Russians are not attracted to another form of political system. That they don't begin talking about democracy. They don't talk about freedom of speech. They don't talk about rule of law. Um, and part of his strategy is therefore to undermine, to destabilize, and to and to sort of um, smear the name of both of NATO, both of NATO and the European Union, but especially the European Union. Um, the European Union. One of the things that frightened him the most about the Revolution in Ukraine in 2014 was the site of young people waving EU flags um, in the Maidan Square in Kiev, and he is afraid of the EU as a piece of symbolism, as a you know, as a as a as a, as a region that is pro- seen as prosperous, democratic, um, law abiding, um, and therefore, if you a, a recent survey of Russian television showed. Um, I think it was something like on average seventeen times a day there's a negative story about Europe or Europeans on Russian television there's a very repetitive constant narratives about the EU being degenerate about it falling apart about all Europeans live in terrible fear of terrorism um, and so on and so on and at the same time I think he's actively seeking to support European um, pol- groups and political parties who also want to undermine the eu and you know, so you know that's so his strategy, in other words, if you stack back, is first to stay in power, and secondly to stay in power, by through the undermining of European institutions when he can do it. And so whether it's support for the very anti-European Northern League political party in Italy, which is now part of the Italian government, or whether it's support, open actually financial support for Marine Le Pen, who was the candidate to be president of France, or whether it's support for extremists of all kinds. Um, all over Europe. He seeks, he not he personally, but his, his people seek in every country. Um, they look for divisions. They seek to exacerbate them. They seek to amplify the voices of extremists. Um, they use social media manipulation in order to do this. Um, you know, We see it over and over and over again. They work um, it, often in congruence together with um, the far-right or the alt-right, um, really in almost every European country. I wanted
1: to find out if ordinary Russians really believe the bizarre distortion of reality in their state controlled media. Peter Pomerantsev worked as a TV producer on entertainment channels in Russia for nearly a decade, arriving in the early 2000s.
4: If you switch on Russian TV, it looks just like Western TV. There are debating shows, it feels like a democratic country. There are actually debating shows which are much more fun uh, than Question Time, you know, much more kind of Jerry Springer like in their, their kind of like emotion and excitement. Um, There's current affairs shows. There's there's news shows which literally shot by shot look like Western news shows. Um, So it it will look exactly the same as Western TV. But the minute you scrape away, you realise something very different is going on. I mean, the debating shows, all the political parties represented are either created by the Kremlin or controlled by the Kremlin. Uh, So the debates they're having, they might not be scripted line by line, but the theatre... Is already pre-arranged and the theatre really has one uh, has one output and that is to make it clear that there's no alternative to Putin that all the other things on offer crazy leftists crazy rightists um, soppy liberals none of them are as good as Putin so all of them are allowed to play their part through leaders who understand the kind of very limited roles they're allowed to play uh, and in some ways it can even contribute to the discourse From slightly different points of view, and Putin can do a balance against. Oh, I've listened to the left and the right, Uh, but none of them pose or even try to pose a genuine threat. This was known as managed democracy, but really it was the opposite. It was kind of authoritarianism with a democratic facade. Now the thing to understand is Russian audiences aren't stupid. They understand this. Yeah, and um, and even if they were you know, befuddled by this. And in, in 1996, certainly by the mid-2000s, this was already ritualized. Uh, and so an even more subtle thing was going on there. There was like a, a message being sent to people. We control the whole political process. We have everything, you know, the left, the right, whatever. This is the game. You can join in with it, know that Putin is going to be the victor. But this is the farce of democracy that you have to buy into if you want to play along. And even, which sort of sort of a form of messaging, you know, these are the rules, play along with them um and then in an even more insidious way saying well this is exactly what you have in the west as well that was the other message that went with it we have a pseudo democracy and a bit of a charade so do they theirs is exactly the same as ours so the other thing that would always you know the accompanying political coverage that would come would be to say to show kind of how manipulated and fake democracy is in the west um so so it's actually a very subtle thing i mean Uh, I'm not a huge believer in in sort of propaganda as brainwashing. I'm sure you can convince people of some things when you really ramp up fear for a short period of time. But mostly it's a very, very complex dialogue with society and with audiences, uh, which, which they don't always buy into. So the protests of 2011, 2012 were all about people saying we've had enough of this sham. We want a real democracy. And the response was... War <laughs> but um, but but that's something very important to understand i mean it's it's not people aren't passive viewers, you know they they are being engaged in a series of signals um, to which they respond to because of fear, maybe they don't want to lose their place in the social system. they think it's more beneficial to play along, but it is a dialogue
1: in the old cold war, the u s and Russia were bitter enemies, but in the u s we now have a former head of the FBI. Robert Mueller investigating allegations that Trump's election campaign colluded with the Russian government. At a recent press conference with Putin in Helsinki, Trump appeared to side with the Russian leader by dismissing US intelligence agencies' conclusions that the Russians interfered in the 2016 election. But after fierce criticism from senators in his own Republican party, Trump publicly corrected his remarks the following day, claiming to have misspoken. He then invited Putin to the White House to continue their discussions at a later date. I asked Christian Nitu if he thinks that Putin effectively puts Trump in the White House.
3: I find that to be the most funny thing that's happening now in world politics. And I think it's it shows the decline of American foreign policy and power. If, if we still think of America as a superpower, then why with... American politicians claim that a country which is on the face of it very weak in economic terms as Russia would be able to have such a, an important amount of influence on America's most important democratic practices. So America is basically admitting that it it's weak and that it, it can be very easily uh, subverted by other states. So I think it's we can probably think of this as America's, uh, one of its last stances as a superpower. It's it's a sign of weakness, it's a sign that it's not really ready to take on the same level of responsibility in the world order as it did, let's say, a decade ago. I, I think from the Russian point of view they're, they're having a, a field day from this because they see it as the decline of... Uh, Western American politics uh, and they, every time I talk to to my Russian friends or to Russian officials they're, they're very they're very surprised that the United States thinks that Russia is so powerful and uh, would have this kind of capacity to to influence American politics in a, in a significant manner.
1: But there, there were, there. I mean, there have been established links, haven't there, between yeah. Trump and and the Kremlin, I mean yeah. um, it's not without any foundation, is it, this well, investigation?
3: I don't think it's without any foundation, but I think it's overestimating the amount of influence that Russia had. And it's taking, as we say in the literature, it's taking agency from, uh, from Trump or from other Americans who were involved in this, because it's, it's arguing that they are no more than puppets in Russian hands which I, I'm not sure is the best way to, to view the situation because if that would be the case I think Trump would have, uh, would have focused American foreign policy priorities in a different direction but if we look at US-Russia relations in the last let's say, how how long has it been like a year and a half right since Trump came to power so in this period there hasn't been a major shift in US-Russia relations and sanctions are still there. In, even more, they're they're much stronger than they were uh, two years ago.
1: Anne Applebaum has spent time in Washington investigating Russia's influence.
5: One of the oddities about Donald Trump is that while he's willing to criticize everybody in quite vicious language, from the mayor of London to uh, to you know his Republican colleagues to. Uh, you know, to, to all kinds of foreign leaders around the world, the one, the one person he has never criticized on Twitter or anywhere else is Putin. And this, is, this was something people noticed before the election. Um, it seems to go back to his fascination with Putin that dates back uh, a decade or more. Um, we know now that during the election campaign, even quite late into the campaign, he, was, he and his people were negotiating um, to do a business deal in Moscow that he seemed to think was even then very possible. Um, we, of course, know that the Russians were attempting to help him win. We know that a lot of members of his campaign had contacts with Russia um, and that he's he's in a way, has some kind of image of Russia as the country that, that he wants to have the closest relationship with. Um, he's now in a very awkward position because he is under investigation for this relationship, and every, lots of people around him are. People around him have already been indicted, um, including one of his campaign managers, but also... His well, his first national security adviser, um, and so because of he now has to be super cautious and very careful about how he talks and deals with Russia, and I think the Skripal moment was one where uh, when it was presented him look all the of America's allies are reacting, don't you want to react as well, and he decided to join in with that because you know to avoid the impression that he was um, that he has some strange relationship with um, with Moscow. Um, The rumor is, with um, the the stories that have come out of the White House since then, say that he's he he regrets having expelled as many diplomats as he did. He thought that Europe would expel more. He he doesn't really understand that a country like Germany or Britain or France has fewer diplomats in Moscow than the U.S. does. And so, you know, when Europe expels 60 diplomats, that means each European country expels three or four. And he was very disappointed by that. He thought that he'd, he'd gone out of the line, and he objected later on to his advisors about doing that. So I think while he was—because of the investigation, he's, he has to be careful now what he says or does. There's really no indication that he has you know, any desire to create a strategy that would really block Russia. Um, I've actually spent a lot of time in Washington over the last few months— talking to people about Russia's influence campaigns, not just its information campaigns but its other attempts to buy um, and influence political parties and businesses in Europe and in the United States and indeed around the world. and I, one of, What I hear in Washington is that there are you know, individual people and departments who under, of course understand these arguments and are willing to make some moves and there are, at the lower level there are diplomats who, are, who understand very much that this is a great challenge. The, the real problem is that there is no strategy in Washington. There's no. It's not clear what our strategy should be towards Russia. What is our goal? What is our long-term aim? Um, how are we organizing all of our various policies—information, military, um, and others—in um, order to block Russian influence? And, the, and of course, the answer is that we're not thinking like that. We don't have a strategy because the White House doesn't want to have one. So, on the one hand, I think this is what you're going to see over the next few months. On the one hand. Um, occasionally, these sort of you know, pushbacks, small pushbacks, expulsion of diplomats, you know, an occasional comment here or there by James Mattis or somebody else. And on the other hand, a real lack of strategic thinking about how we want to deal with this problem long term because um, the White House just doesn't want to do that. Here's Peter Pomerantziv.
4: Trump is the first American leader who wants to, who at least says he wants to, uh, achieve pretty much all of Russia's foreign policy aims, um, which is, you know, you know, destroy international institutions, um, destroy economic institutions that have kind of supported the post-Cold War order. Um, You know, we now have a crisis with Europe over Iran, which is, you know, Kremlin has tried to split America from Europe so hard for so many years and now we just do it to, you know, Trump just does it. Um, So, like, you know, it's fantastic. Plus, he makes America look isolated and buffoonish. I'm not saying he's doing it on purpose or not, but, you know what a what a godsend huh
1: (laughs) so um finally are we in a new cold war and if so is it more dangerous than the last and how real do you think the nuclear threat is
4: i i i worry a little bit about the new cold war terminology um certainly um well firstly i mean there's the sort of you know from sort of broader international relations view there's no two blocks there's no two competing ideologies there's no berlin wall you know there's none of those things which really are the constituent parts of the cold war russia getting into spats with the west is, goes back much further than the cold war but more specifically I, I i'm a little bit nervous around some of the terminology because this is something that the russians like to play with i mean putin gets a lot of kudos about this being a new cold war i mean he can, you know he can then he's then therefore a great leader but also it puts us into a kind of a diplomatic trap. If we say, you know, if we say this is the cold, a new Cold War, then Russia deserves a sphere of influence. And Ukraine, why shouldn't Ukraine then be under Russia's hegemony? And, you know, where is you know, that's, that plays into a world view that leads us to a kind of like, a, uh, to a final destination, which I think is the one that the Kremlin seems to want, which is, you know, Europe divided up into spheres of influence, to be decided by great powers and certainly not by these you know, pesky sovereign states in the middle In their opinion. So I'd be very careful slipping into that, into that mind frame. Um, so, so I try to avoid it.
1: I also asked Christian Nietzsche if we are entering a new Cold War.
3: I, well, that's a very complex question. But I think we're, we're at a stage that exhibits some of the characteristics of the former Cold War but I don't think we are in a proper Cold War. We're actually heading gradually to what I think is a cold peace. And the cold peace was what actually characterized relations between the West and Russia up until the Ukraine crisis. So a cold peace from my point of view means that you have a series of contradictions contradictions and conflicts which are not really dealt by both Russia and the West, the European Union and the United States in this case. So both the West and Russia choose to actually ignore those contradictions and have some sort of working level dialogue. And I think that's where we're heading now. But this is the kind of situation that's made Russians feel very disenfranchised and disappointed and uh, to some extent betrayed throughout the 90s because they thought that if Russia would embrace liberalism. And would try to become an integral part of the international community, then the West would see would see Moscow as an equal, but that didn't happen in the post Cold War period. So, uh, since Putin came to power in 2000, he increasingly started to realize that uh, being playing by the rules of the international community would not be the best way to enhance Russia's power, and this led U.S. and Russia relations as well as relations between the West and Russia to enter a period of cold peace where Russia was at least in rhetoric arguing that it, it wants good relations with the West but it, would, it wasn't really taking any significant steps in this direction while the West was taking at face value what Russia was saying but was not really doing anything to uh, make Russia feel Welcome or unequal in in the world order. So, and the only thing that they were doing is that they were trying to, on a symbolic level, to to have some level of cooperation and dialogue. And I think with the Ukraine crisis, those links were severed. So there was no more dialogue, no more technical cooperation, or no more willingness to cooperate. And Russia became an enemy in the United States and the European Union. And the West became the perpetual enemy for Russia. But I think now, a few years after the Ukraine crisis uh, started, I think we're we're slowly and gradually going towards the kind of old business we had with the Cold Peace uh, during the post-Cold War period. So the last two, three years have been some sort of anomaly in West-Russia relations. And I think it's going to be back to to old business. But then if if we're going to talk about the period following the the Ukraine crisis, I think at that time there were quite a lot of fears that we would enter a new Cold War. Because there was a perception that uh, two irreconcilable blocks were, were about to be formed. The West with Being uh, wanting to champion the promotion of liberal values and Russia having a more, let's say, non-liberal approach, anti-Western approach which was thought to galvanize some sort of broader response from other states like China, Brazil, or India or other states that uh, have problems with liberal values. But that hasn't happened. And the kind of tensions and conflict between the West and Russia have not really uh, gathered some sort of global momentum. As during the Cold War, where uh, the conflict between Russia, the Soviet Union, and uh, the West was actually obviously involving the the whole world. Now it's um, the kind of conflict we're seeing or tensions we're seeing are more localized and don't really influence most aspects of the world order, of the global economic system.
5: Here's Anne Applebaum. I don't think Cold War is the best metaphor for what's going on now because that um, gives the impression that there are sort of two ideologies, you know, battling one another, for control and they both have adherence on both sides, and so on. Rather than pushing an ideal or, a, or a, an argument, um, most of the time what Russia is doing is trying to undermine us. So, you know, it's more as if the Russian regime were saying, We know we're corrupt, you know, we know, um, you know, we're not Democrats, you know, but you're corrupt too. And also, your system is also terrible. The tools of this competition are also different. Um, it's not, you know, Pravda versus. The London Times and the New York Times. It's um, anonymous um, trolls pretending to be, I don't know, pro-Brexit or pro-anti-Brexit, um, you know, acting on British social media, trying to gain followers and trying to pass on, you know, memes and ideas and, and narratives. Um, and so thinking of it as some kind of major battle is a, is a misunderstanding of what it is. We need to, we need to um, step back and think of it as something really new, that this is um, this is a this is an anti democratic regime, which seeks to undermine democracy by infiltrating and undermining our own institutions and our faith in our own institutions, um, and we need to come up with responses to that and not imagine that we can go back to some cold war mentality or way of thinking. I would say maybe the only the only useful parallel to the past is is this one, namely that during the cold war we had a kind of joined up foreign policy that worked across different. Different parts of the government, so you know the cabinet plus the foreign office plus MI6 plus the media, um, you know, had you know communicated and understood, uh, you know, had had a sort of a common understanding of what the Cold War was, Um, and recreating something like that where we have a common understanding of what Russia is and what it does. Um, Certainly, at least inside the UK, it's probably not possible inside the US right now, but inside the UK. Um, would also help in the response. And what about the nuclear threat? Do you think that's real? The nuclear threat is real because um, uh, because you know nuclear weapons still exist. Um, Putin, you know, I think has has brought the discussion and mentioning of and and sort of advocacy of nuclear power back into the center of Russian propaganda. We've had. Um, you know, mushroom clouds on Russian television and the language of threat being used around nuclear power. Once again, we also know that um, the Russian military exercises the use of nuclear power. In other words, they practice taking the missiles out and putting them on planes or, or practice, practice, they practice using them as part of regular exercises. Um, I think this is partly language directed at us. It's decided, it's designed to make us afraid of them and so that we seek to appease them rather than, rather than deter them. Um, but I wouldn't count it out as a possibility in that, you know, this is clearly a Russian president who's not going to leave office, who doesn't want to leave before he dies. Um, he may even be afraid of leaving because of what the retribution might be. And we know how he's stolen a lot of money. He's killed a lot of people. He, he could be afraid of what losing would mean for him personally. And I wouldn't count out him using the threat of nuclear weapons or even using a tactical nuclear weapon if it's something that he needs to do to stay in power. So I don't think it can be counted out as something that belongs to the past. I think, it's, um, uh, I think it needs to be remembered that this is still a weapon they own and that they're, they're preparing themselves to be willing to use. This
0: episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Joanna Bale, Shea Forbes-Taylor, Tom Williams and Jess Winterstein. It was based in part on the following research. Soviet Subversion, Disinformation and Propaganda, How the West Fought Against It, An Analytic History with Lessons for the Present by Nicholas J. Cole, Vasily Getov, Peter Pomerantsev, Anne Applebaum and Alistair Shawcross. Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine by Anne Applebaum. Nothing is true and everything is possible by Peter Pomerantsev. Towards conflict or cooperation, the Ukraine crisis and EU-Russian relations by Christian you. Join us for the next episode when we ask, how do stories help us understand the world? Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ.